0: Thank you, guys. I would trust that if a pastor were to stand in your pulpit and say that he hears the word of God, that you would be quick to run him out, but uh, that song that we just sung reminds us that we do hear God's voice, that he does speak to us, and he speaks to us where? In his word. You're killing me this morning. I love that song, too. Uh, you, You may be seated. And turn in your Bibles to First Peter. And we'll be looking at the Christian submission to unchristian spouses. We'll be reading First Peter three one to seven, and in this text, we, in in this in this grander text which began in the middle of chapter two, we see that the apostle Peter. Sometimes I refer to him as Pastor Peter, that he is concerned with the conduct and behavior of the church. He wants to teach Christians how to live like a Christian. And ever since chapter 2, verse 11, he's been explaining what the believer's position in Jesus Christ ought to be producing in them as they as they go out and as they live their lives inevitably encountering persecution, inevitably encountering hostility at the hands of a world that hated their Lord, that killed their Lord and Savior. And Peter is writing we have to remember this we, Peter is writing to real people in real time in real circumstances who and those circumstances were could be described as real hardship, real, Trials, And it is, be, it is really, really, really good to be reminded that in the midst of that, our Christian conduct, this, this excellent conduct that God is instructing us to have, it not only glorifies him, it not only pleases him, it's not just our calling since we follow Christ, but it is also an effective tool for evangelism. Do you you believe that, that the Word of God says your Christian conduct, your excellent behavior is used by God to win the lost? He says that in chapter 2, verse 12, that having an excellent behavior among believers, that it may cause them to glorify God in the day of visitation. And when we looked at that text, we saw that the day of visitation is that moment when God's mercy is manifested in the life of the sinner and it's revealed to the sinner and that sinner turns to God in repentant faith and that sinner is saved. It is a good day to be... The day that one is visited by God like that is a good day. So with the many motivations given in this series, which begins in chapter 2, verse 11 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 4... Peter reminds us here that our Christian conduct, that that by our Christian conduct, the unbeliever might be led to salvation. And we see this truth applied here in this text in the smallest, but beyond a doubt, the most crucial, the most important unit of a functional society. What unit is that? The family. He, he, he focuses on marriage here, it's, but it's the family. And Peter has carried us through various platforms of society which all function on this premise of, of submission of one body to another. And he, he began first with the national scale, with citizen to king, and then he moved to the local scale with slave to master. And here in verses 1 to 6, you will see the Christian wife's submission to her unchristian husband. And then in verse 7, the Christian husband's duty to his unbelieving wife, to his, to his unchristian wife. Let's read the text. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So we see Peter address the wife in verses 1 through 6, and then the husband gets only one verse. Six verses for the wife. Does that sound a little unfair? Does that sound a little unbalanced? Well, honestly, I don't know if men can handle more than one verse at a time. But he's speaking to Christian wives in verse 1 to 6. They get six whole verses and we have to see that this instruction is not primarily directed for Christian marriages. If you look in verse 1, you you see a big if right in the middle of the verse, and that is what uh, grammar people call a first-class condition. It is, uh, you can replace that if with since because for, for the sake of an argument, the writer is assuming something to be the case. So it's not if they are disobedient to the word, it is since they are disobedient to the word, in the same way that you may tell your, those of you who have children, if If you want to have the car tonight, you're going to get your chores done. There's no question if Junior or Junioretta wants to go out tonight. So, since they are disobedient to the word. And this text answers the question, what does a believing wife do with her unbelieving husband? Or, in verse 7, what does a believing husband do with his unbelieving spouse? Ought the Christian who is now married to someone who doesn't share their faith who doesn't share their convictions ought they to to ditch their unbelieving spouse do they need to go find someone who's who's spiritual who's born again who's more in line with their principles someone who's a little more enlightened should the husband view his wife with indifference I mean, after all, she doesn't, she doesn't belong to the kingdom of God anyways. Isn't, isn't he on a higher plane now? Should the wife shun her husband? Should she shun and reject his authority? I mean, after all, doesn't she now answer to a higher authority? Doesn't she now belong to a better man, the man Jesus Christ? So the question is, is what does each Christian do in this situation? Well, what helps puts the fact that Peter gives six verses to the wife compared to one verse for the man is what it meant to be a woman in the first century. Quite frankly, it was horrible. Women were treated like property. They were often viewed as little more than a slave or a domesticated animal. master could have, just as a master could have his Slave executed on a whim because he did something to displease his master and the master would have Absolutely no legal consequence. A husband could do the same thing for his wife If a husband walked in and found his wife having an affair, he could have her executed no trial No questions asked If a wife walked in found his hus- found her husband in the same thing She can't do anything So it's it's a little Stacked in terms of double standards. And so women typically had more problems. There were more hurdles and struggles when they converted to Christianity compared to a man who converted because the worldview was very much against women and their place in social structure. Now, when a man converts, his wife, converts along with him. He's the one in charge anyway. She's not really allowed to have an opinion herself, and so she goes with the flow. And whether or not that conversion is authentic or genuine, that's that's a whole other topic. But, so at least on the surface level, on the surface there is no problem. But when a woman who, according to that culture According to that society, when a woman who has no rights converts and she comes to faith and she now professes that faith and she tries to live out that faith independently of the figurative head of her life, whether it was her father or whether that head had now become her husband, when that happened, she's now a rogue. She's become defiant. She's become independent. And you can see the, the great potential for shame and embarrassment and conflict. In that society, a woman who, who would do that would be deemed unfaithful. And so the women of Peter's day, they needed a little extra encouragement to do their part. And Peter, I love Peter. You can see his pastoral heart. In this epistle, he is sensitive to the difficulty of their predicament. And he is kind and comforting to them, and he responds to their difficulty by giving them extra words that are designed to encourage them, designed to encourage the Christian wife in this situation. Now, as I said, there are many reasons given in this grander text, uh, beginning in 2.11 all the way to the end of, here in 3.7, there are many reasons given why we submit, why we submit to our governments, why we submit to our masters. But the goal in mind here, Peter is br- making it extremely personal. He's making it extremely personal and, and touching on something incredibly valuable for the Christian wife, and that motivation is the salvation of her husband. She submits for the sake of the salvation of her husband. So to give the wife the best evangelistic tool that she can have, an evangelistic tool that reinforces the gospel message, that demonstrates that the gospel does in fact make a definitive change in a person, let's see what the Christian's wife's responsibility is to her Christian husband. Look at at verse 1. Peter says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And stop right there. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. What a can of worms Peter has opened up, huh? In some churches, if I were to say that, this pulpit would need to be reinforced because I would be ducking behind it. He opens this up by saying, in the same way, and that tells us, He's continuing something. that he's, Whatever it was he was saying, he's not done. He's not done. And what is that? It is how Christians in the different facets of life ought to be marked with an attitude of submission, whether it's a citizen to a king, whether it's a slave to a master, and here it is a wife to her husband. And one thing I have attempted to lay down in each sermon is that God has ordained order and structure in society to function through two things. Those who are placed in authority and those who are placed under that authority. And while certain men, I mean, the the, the call in, in all of this, the call is that even when men, perhaps most men who have been in that position of authority, when they show themselves to have abused their power, it doesn't mean that the authority itself is to be unrecognized or abolished. Kings and governors are head of the nation for the sake of peace, for the sake of order. They are given authority. Masters are head of businesses, and they maintain the economy. Today, they maintain the economy by putting money in your wallet or if you have direct deposit in your account. Back then, they maintained the economy by giving you a place to live, and put clothes on your back, and put food in your belly, in addition to a few coins. Husbands are the head of the wife, and they lead the family unit. Husbands are to lead, wives are to submit. Now, submit, that word means to line up under, to place yourself under, to, to be ranked Under And the way Peter used that word, it has to be something that that comes from within. He says to submit yourselves originally. It, It is something that the wife has to impose upon herself. Peter does not have the idea of outside influences forcing this attitude of submission on the wife. She is to submit herself under her husband's. Leadership. And one thing that our culture will tell you time and time and time again is that being in submission automatically, without question, without equivocation, means inferiority. Has anyone not heard this? To submit to someone means you are inferior to that person, that you are less of a person, that you are worth less than that person and perhaps when it's a man forcing you to submit i might give some ground to that thought but when it's god revealing that leadership and submission is the order that that he has put down that he has established that he has ordained it doesn't mean that if you go back to the creation account man was good but he was incomplete and God says it wasn't good for him to be alone, so he makes for him a woman, a companion, a suitable helper, one who is comparable to him, one whose strengths correspond to his weaknesses, one whose weaknesses corresponds to his strengths. When he was alone, man was, it was not good, but when he was with his wife, man was very good. Genesis one twenty seven reinforces that the image of God resides in both male and female. So being a man, you bear the image of God. Being a woman, you bear the image of God. And furthermore, in the New Testament, Paul says in Galatians 3.27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, you have Closed yourself with Christ. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are one in Christ. And what I want everyone to hear, what I want everyone to hear me saying right now is that there is no biblical precedence, there is no biblical warrant to think that there is any intellectual moral or spirit, spiritual high ground that either gender has over the other. Male leadership does not mean male superiority. In Christ, there is no male and female, but in marriage, there is, can I get an amen? Amen. Don't listen to what society tells you in that regards. In in marriage, there is male and female. And within the construct of the family, God has said husbands are to lead, wives are to submit. Now, notice what Peter doesn't say. What does Peter not say here? He doesn't say that wives ought to leave their unbelieving husbands. Rather, if, if at all possible, they are to remain with their husbands. In the same way that slaves are not instructed to run away from their masters, the implication is that if possible, wives are to remain married to their husbands. Around five or so years before Peter would write these letters, the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 7, 13 and following, a woman who has an unbelieving husband, if he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Why? Well, he, he continues. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. That's, that's talking about him being made a benefiter. Uh, he, he, he gets benefits. He's blessed for being so close to her. Not doesn't mean he is saved by being joined to her. But he says the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through Through her believing husband. Yet. If the unbelieving one leaves. Let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. And he gives the reason here. God has not called. uh, For God has called us to. Peace. The Christian spouse is held in either case you don't have the right to initiate the divorce if their spouse is run off by the faith of the believing spouse or if if the spouse is not run off by the faith of the one who has now become a christian of the if if they're not scared off by the changes of now being married to a Christian, let them remain but if the spouse isn't willing to remain if if remaining in that same house is going to drive them absolutely bonkers, if all that's going to happen is they're going to fight and bicker, God does not want that. And if, if that's the case, it is the prerogative of the unbelieving spouse to leave if they choose. The ball is in their court. Because if you force the unbeliever to remain, the chaos that would ensue won't help the Christian's witness and testimony. It's not going to drive that person to Christ. But if they are willing to remain in the house with that Christian, don't run off. Don't run off because God just might save your spouse. And if that's going to happen, your Christian behavior is going to play a very important part that's precisely Peter's point. Christian wives submit, look in verse 1, to your own husbands so that if any, again, you can replace the if any with since. Since they are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe the chaste and respectful behavior. Of their wives. Now, if you see that word "observe," that points us back to one twelve, where Peter said that the Gentiles are observing your good works, and that they they might glorify God in the day of visitation, because they are observing your works. So it's the same idea here. But Christian wife, Christian woman, your conduct is important. Your conduct is important now who are who are they to submit to not not just any husbands and certainly not all husbands amen but to their own husbands that that emphatic personal pronoun and then he says that they may be that they the husbands may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives now this threw me for a loop first cuz just like that that last song that the McCafferty brothers sung this morning the word of God is God speaking to us. And that it, we, we place a very, very high place. We, we place the scriptures in a very high place in the role of salvation. In fact, it is in a unique, exclusive place in its role uh, in, in the order of salvation. And And I had to ask myself, is Peter saying that a wife's behavior... Rather than the word of God, is it, can a wife's behavior be the means of saving her husband? If you look back at chapter 1, verse 23, you will see that Peter has already established the role of the word of God as the means in which the unbelievers regenerated. And then as Paul says in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by what? Your wife acting nice? By your, your wife... Submitting to you, is is that how salvation comes? No, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The point is, God doesn't merely zap regeneration. He doesn't merely inject eternal life into people. He uses the means of his word to compel the sinner that he is a sinner, to compel the sinner that he desperately needs the forgiveness of his sins, that And that the forgiveness of his sins has been provided for him or her through Christ. And that by believing in Christ, the sinner is given that eternal life and he's now reconciled and he now has heaven to look forward to. That is something that you you don't just observe by someone's actions. You don't just observe that in nature. You need specific revelation. You need the details found in the word of God and that. that is where you find those truths in his written, God-breathed word. So the conduct of the wife doesn't replace the role of the word of God. But what Peter is implying is that if a Christian wife says the gospel of Jesus Christ has begun to make these changes in her, but her conduct says something else. if If, if she talks the talk, but if she's not... Walking the walk, she's really, in the end, at the end of the day, she's really no different than an unchristian wife. Then maybe the gospel really doesn't have the power to change a person like God's word says that it does. And she can talk, 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 talk all she wants. But her Christian conduct does more harm to her testimony than. All the words in the world can do to help it. And in layman's terms, Peter is saying you, a, a Christian wife cannot nag her husband into the kingdom of God. But if she's different, if there is a noticeable change, if we're the natural woman who hates to submit, she if she loathes the authority of her husband but the Christian wife comes along and she freely submits and she does it with a genuine sincerity, that's the recipe for a husband to be a little more considerate towards his wife's evangelism. Does that make sense? And while the context is primarily directed at those who are are saved but are married to unsaved husbands and and in verse 7, unsaved spouses, Really, the only difference between this text and what Paul says about the responsibilities of husbands and wives in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 and Colossians 3:18 and Titus 2, 4-5, the only difference is the motivation given. In those texts... The husbands are instructed to lead because that 's how God designed that 's what God designed them to do, and wives submit because that 's what God designed them to do that 's how the two complementary pieces fit together. here Peter is saying that the wife submits because God might use that your attitude in that submission to confirm the gospel. so the instruction. It, the principle of what we ought to be doing is the same. So if if you if you are married to a believing spouse, don't check out here. You know, that, th- don't don't think this doesn't apply to us. But what if what if submitting to my husband requires me to sin? I mean, we ne we never look for loopholes for you know in, in, in the things that we're told to do, right? What if what if submitting to my husband what? What if I have to sin to to do what he wants? Well, you, you obey the greater authority, God's authority. But until that moment, if submitting to your husband means that you need to forfeit your rights, if it means that you need to forfeit your liberties, your comforts, your dignity, your privileges, then let it go. Let those things go. Your Christian witness is so much more important. Your, the, the potential salvation of your spouse, it's more important than your momentary comforts. But won't submitting to my husband mean I never get to share my opinion Does it mean that I'll never have a say in the matter? Maybe. Shocking, isn't it? It it, it could mean that you might get walked over and walked on. It might mean that, but that depends on your husband. And if he's a good man, if he's a Christian man, if he's a sensible man, if he's not a fool, he will listen to your wisdom and he will take into account your contribution to the decision-making. So he, he may give you that, but what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't let you be a part of the decision-making and he does walk all over you? At the end of the day, Peter is asking you through implication, will you recognize your husband's headship over you? Will you recognize and respect his duty to lead you? Regardless of how dumb he can be sometimes, Christian wife, Christian wives are submissive to their husbands. Now, we second thing that she's called to do in verses three to six, while continuing in the very last bit of uh, chapter t- uh, verse two, he says. Um, your chaste and respectful behavior in 3 to 6 is an explanation. It's an illustration of that chaste and respectful behavior. And we'll sum that up in one word, and we'll say that she is to be modest. She is to be modest, and it's this mod- modesty. It's this chaste and respectful behavior that, that the husband, the unbelieving husband, is observing. Day in and day out, he's he's observing the behavior of his Wife, and where women naturally try to make their best appearances in their exterior, and Peter says, the real where, where, where does Peter say the real value is found? On the exterior, on the heart. The real value is found on the inside, and he says, let your adornment. He says your adornment must not be merely external. So he's he's not saying. Really let yourself go. It's okay to be unkempt. He's not, he's not saying that. I mean, you're, we, we look at the Song of Solomon. We look at the description of the church as the bride of Christ. And it, it is good to recognize the beauty of women. It is good. But what he's saying is you know, that, 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 that there is an appropriate time and within reason to, to recognize that beauty. But what he's saying is, is don't let that be your soul focus the focus ought not to be primarily on the outside he provides some examples he says in verse 3 continues in verse 3 he says braiding the hair wearing gold jewelry putting on dresses now the woman in the old world they'd go they would go through painstakingly elaborate expensive and time consuming means of decorating themselves by dyeing their hairs in all exotic colors. You think that the punk rockers down in L.A. Uh, were, the, were the pioneers of this? No, 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 no. No, they were doing this back in, back in Rome, back in the old world, finding all sorts of dyes to, to color their hairs. And uh, I even heard that they had, um, I mean, they, 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 they would um, go through these really ornate braids, and they even had the Marge Simpson-style beehive thingy. I haven't seen any pictures, but I've heard they did things like that. They would go through these elaborate means of decorating themselves and with with the color of their hair, the, 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 the braiding of their hair, and their their dresses, which would just be covered with the most expensive gems and pearls and stones, because they want to not merely accentuate their beauty, but by accentuating their beauty, they're trying to, attach value to themselves because their husbands didn't value them. They felt they were only as valuable as as they could make themselves attractive. And Peter says, do not be preoccupied with that. Do not let that be an idol. Because what's truly valuable to God and helpful to evangelizing your husband, it's not wasting money on these things, on on, on these uh, uh, clothing and and jewels and gems that rust and fade or that can get stolen and have to be replaced. I mean, one thing I've noticed with people who have, you know, the, the, the really nice cars and the really nice things and the nice clothes is they usually don't just have one nice change of clothing. They usually have a whole closet. Those who... Are obsessed with these things. They usually don't have just one gem or one necklace or one nice watch. They usually have a whole cabinet full, and it's an obsession. Usually, one is never enough. And Peter says, rather than investing your your money, your resources, your time, your energy, your heart, your con- rather than investing your confidence in these things which don't really last. Rather than adorning yourself with these external things, he says, adorn yourself with the inner beauty that's marked with this, I love this phrase, this imperishable quality of gentleness and quietness. He says that that quality is imperishable. Just as he describes the Christian's inheritance back in chapter 1, do you remember that? He says that the Christian's inheritance is imperishable compared to earthly inheritances which can be squandered which could lose their value which could be stolen extorted which could be bribed away which could lose their value lost just as the christian's inheritance which never loses its value it never fades it's never lost it it's ne- it never diminishes in the same way peter is saying a woman who has these qualities in her of gentleness and quietness and and humble submission, that this is an imperishable quality. It is a long-lasting quality. When 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 anyone goes to buy a house or buy a car, don't doesn't the wise person stop and think about the marginal cost and the marginal gain and what you know, what are what what kind of costs am I going to incur and what benefits am I going to incur five years down the road, ten years down the road? A wise person looks at the long haul. And Peter is saying. If you want something that is valuable for the long haul, if you want the bang for your buck, don't invest yourself, don't adorn yourself with these outer treasures. Have the treasure be on the inside. Gentle it says gentleness. This is meekness. This is the word used in Matthew five five, that where the blessed are the meek. This is this is a quality where someone they're they're not. Overly impressed with their own sense of worth. They're humble. And quietness is, uh, is being calm. It's being well-ordered. It's being self-controlled. And this is the exact opposite of, what, of, 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 of sometimes how men are impulsive and they're, they're led by, they make rash decisions. It's the opposite of being that bull in the china shop. So both uh, gentleness and quietness, these go very, very, very well with with modesty. So that's why I I titled it that, modesty. Now, Peter gives two pieces of encouragement to wives here. Two pieces of encouragement to wives. First, he says that this quality, this imperishable quality marked by gentleness and quietness, that it is Precious in the sight of God. It is precious. It is of great value. It's not just merely what God is instructing because that's your duty. It is something that God delights in. It is something that God desires to see in the women that follow Jesus. So, wife, do you want to please God? Then have this attitude of Chastity and respect towards your husband, especially when it makes it tough to do so. And second Peter gives us a picture to look at just like he gave us a picture at the end of chapter two. He gives a picture to look at because that illustrations always help illustrations are good so this, and he said just as a a woman on the cover of, of a magazine you know sometimes we, we go to the store and we see all these magazines with women and and they're accentuating their hair or their body or, their, or the, 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 whatever that gel stuff does to your skin, the smoothness of your Obviously, I don't buy this stuff. But we, these models are trying to be the model for whatever it is that they're trying to get you to buy the, you know, to, or, or to invest in. And in the same way, Peter gives us a model to look at. Look at verse 5. For in the former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. Now did you catch that? These women, who hoped in God, and he 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 calls out. He specifies Sarah, wife of Abraham, patriarch of the covenant. So she's the she's the matriarch of the covenant. She had they had, she, they and she adorned themselves with this precious imperishable attitude of submission to her husbands. are He says that they hoped in God, that they had trust and they had confidence, but how did it manifest? It was manifested and seen through them recognizing God had made and appointed their husbands to be their head. And here, Peter is referring to Genesis 18.11. He says that Sarah is an exemplary model to follow for wives. And what did she do? She, she called him Lord. And that word can be can mean master or sir. So, wives, you need to call your husbands Lord no. Now, she she only did it that one time. We only have that one account in Genesis 18:11. And, and and just as a side note, it's not the title that's important, but it's the attitude behind it. So it, it doesn't really mean anything if you it, it, for. Someone to call their husband sir, but not to, not to have a conduct that complements that or goes with it. But she only says it that, that one time in the record of scripture, Genesis eighteen eleven. But Peter says, Peter describes her calling uh, Abraham as Lord in the present tense. So it, it, it's an ongoing thing. It's not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing, it is a a regular pattern. It is a quality of who she was. It was a marked quality of her attitude. Knowing the hard challenges and the consequences that many of the women in the church could face from their husbands because of their faith, Peter, he sensitively and he compassionately and soberly tells the wives, you have become the daughter's of of Abraham of Sarah if you do what is right without fear you have become her children now you have to stop and think about how encouraging that would be for a woman who at best she's looked at with suspicion or well, no, at best she would be accepted, but most of the time, at best, she would be looked at with suspicion by her husband or by her family or by her father or those in her community. She would be looked at with suspicion or curiosity. Oftentimes that led to mistrust. And at worst, they would be looked at, they would become estranged, they would become kicked out of the family. They'd be estranged she would become estranged by her family, her husband, her father, because that she dares to profess lordship to this to to another man, to Jesus. Peter says, if you at the same time humbly submit to your unbelieving husband with with respect, with honor, you a woman who society who your culture values as nothing more than a slave, you have become the daughter of the great matriarch of the covenant, of the covenant people of God. If you turn to Hebrews 11, you will see that in 11:11, 11, 11, Sarah is included in what, what, what I call the hall of faith. Other people call it that the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Sarah is mentioned there. Her faith was exemplary. So Sarah, a model of faith, model of humble submission to her husband, of modesty, Christian wife, would you adorn yourself like her? Would you adorn yourself with the same exemplary attitude that she had? Would you see that what you do on the inside is more vastly more important than what you do on the outside? Submission and modesty. This is how you live as a as a Christian wife who is married to an unmarried man. This is how you live, so as so with the hope that he might be saved while he remains married to you. Now let's turn the tables a little bit, shall we? Does anyone want to look at the hus- at the duty of the husbands? Tom saying no. So the husband's chapter verse 7 one whole verse like i said i don't I, we men usually only do well with one thing in their mind so if if he were to continue what was previously said might you know as one goes in and other goes out that's how we're built give us one thing to do we'll do it well give us two things we do nothing well so he says in verse 7 it begins you husbands uh, likewise or, or in the same way, and we have to ask, what does that mean? Well, in three one, Peter says the same thing in the same way, and, and three one pointed back to this attitude of submission, and it reinforced that by saying submit in three one, and then also in verse five. So likewise, here points to this. It points to this attitude of submission that the husband ought to have toward his wife, but. I want you to notice Peter doesn't actually say submit. He doesn't use that word to the husband. He doesn't say submit to her. So he's not saying that the husband lines up under her, but he does imply the husband has to have the same humble and respectful attitude. And, and, and it's helpful to allow Peter to explain, by, to explain what he means by what he follows up with. And you'll see that he's saying not to submit to the authority of your wife, but to submit to the needs of your wife. Submit to the needs of your wife. And he he gives two definitions as to what this means. The first is that the Christian husband is to abide considerably with her. Verse 7, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way or with consideration live with your wives with consideration the same principles applied to husbands here if if he's the one who converts to Christ and she doesn't the husband does not have the prerogative to divorce her or as the pagans would do to have her killed which they had the legal right to do He is to continue living with her. Oh, how horrible, huh? No. But not just to continue living with her, not not just to go on to live with her, but to live with her in a considerate way, in an understandable way. Husband, be mindful, be understanding, be considerate of your wife. That word live is, it means to dwell closely together. It, it, it's, it describes the closeness between two people who, who are intimate. And nobody knows your wife better than you do. Nobody knows her ticks. Nobody knows her quirks. Nobody knows what she likes and dislikes better than you do. Nobody else knows uh, how to push her buttons like you do either. Live with her in such a way that you are clearly expressing to her that you are aware and that you are considered of how she is made. Live as though you are one. And Paul Paul lays this down in Ephesians five twenty eight. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Men, when you, when you have an ailment, when you have an itch, when you have something that is, it, when your body alerts you to, that there is a need that needs to be done, whether it's a need to eat or a need to sleep or a need to get a, a dumb thistle out of your finger, it drives you nuts until you, until you respond to whatever it is that your body is telling you you need to do. Paul is saying, Treat your wife in the same way that you would respond to the needs of your body. If you're cold and you you put something on, if you're hungry, you eat something. If you're tired, you go to sleep. You're responding to the needs of your body. Give that same consideration to your wife because according to Scripture, you're one. Living with understanding means recognizing there are significant differences in how each of you are made. Peter continues in verse 7 live with your wives in in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and again if I was in another church I would duck but I feel reasonably secure up here right now now again not implying inferiority here not implying inferiority but I can say with certainty men are different than women and women are different than men and for some reason the science textbooks don't seem to grasp this nowadays or cnn doesn't seem to grasp this nowadays but they men and women are different they have less muscle mass they think differently they behave differently they they're affected by emotions differently. They have different, uh, they, they, they have certain limitations as to how much output their bodies can produce over long periods of time. And one th- really interesting thing I heard on the radio the other day is that there is a, 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 a surprising study of women who are spending long terms of, uh, of enlistment in the military and what being, what, uh, training and being prepped for service and ready for service over the course of 10, 15, 20 years, what that's doing to their body when they finally come back home. It's startling. They're finding out that they're they're unable to have children because of what all that training has done to their bodies. Now, stop and think about what it must have been like to be a woman with, with, with all the womanly things that go on. Imagine what it would have been like to have been a woman in the first century and not have your local pharmacy. Husband, Now, this is a call to the husbands. Live with your wives in such a way that you understand she's made differently than you. She has strengths that correspond to your weaknesses. You have strengths that correspond to her weaknesses. She's made differently than you. Be considerate of her. Be strong and disciplined, but be gentle and patient with her. Lead her courageously, but, be, but lead her humbly. Care for her as if she were an extension of yourself. Dwell closely with her as if she was an extension of yourself that's the, that's the biblical position between what of the relationship between a husband and wife. so not just he's not just to live considerably towards her, but he's also to honor her with a genuine companionship He's to, he's to honor her with a genuine companionship. verse seven uh, finishes up and show her honor. As a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. She's a, your wife is a, grace, is, a, is a fellow heir of the grace of life. Isn't that a wonderful metaphor? Isn't that a, isn't that a beautiful slogan for what marriage is? Marriage, the grace of life. just as the believer and the unbeliever benefits from king and capital so too does the believer and the unbeliever benefit from the gift of marriage that God graciously gives to men and women even undeserving men and women get the blessed privilege the, the, the blessed privilege of marriage and what peter is saying is Hey, you're, you're in this together. You are her companion. She is your companion. Get in, buckle in, and enjoy the ride. You two are companions in this gift of marriage. It is a good thing to be married. It is a wonderful thing to be married. Stop messing it up and making life difficult for yourselves. And what's so sad is that it was so incredibly incredibly rare for, the, for a pagan marriage to look anything like a Christian marriage. It was unheard of for a wife to be willingly, sincerely submissive, for, for, for a wife to have this attitude of submission that she imposes upon herself. And it was rare for a husband to be willingly considerate towards his wife. That, th- that kind of a relationship, that kind of a mindset between husband and wife outside of the Christian marriage, virtually unheard of. Virtually unheard of to see a spirit of fellowship, to see a spirit of friendship and companionship and partnership, to see a spirit of communion and mutual respect between husband and wife. But that is what Christians are to be for their spouse, even if their spouse does not believe even if they do not profess faith and belong to the Lord. The believing one is to act like this. And Peter gives this sobering wake-up call at the very end of verse 7. And he says that a failure to act like a decent Christian husband will result in the hindering and the encumbering of that which that Christian man has been praying for, and that is the salvation of his dear wife. So, Peter says, Men, don't neglect this duty. Be considerate of your wife. Be a companion to your wife. Because the salvation that you have been praying for will be helped by this kind of attitude that God is calling you to have. So pray for your wives. Pray for her salvation if she doesn't know the Lord. But even if she does know the Lord, pray for her needs and concerns if she is saved. And whatever you do, don't live in such a way that compromises the effectiveness of your prayers to God. He's going to say, and we're going to cover this next week, but he's going to say in verse 12, if you still have your Bible opens, which you should, to look down at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this simple instruction. We were able to find ourselves in this situation right outlined here, Lord. We pray for the salvation of the unbeliever just as much as we pray for the virtue and the conduct of the believer in that marriage. Lord, we pray that you would bless the wives who have unbelieving husbands, that you would give them endurance that you would comfort them by the words of encouragement that you have provided in this text. And likewise, bless the husbands who are married to unbelieving wives. Lord, I don't know if we have anyone in this church, in this congregation who matches that, but we may have family members, we may have friends, we may know people who are in this situation. And we thank you for this word that equips us in how to live out our Christian faith. Help us to have a very high view of marriage. I pray that every man and woman here would grow in their appreciation of this wonderful gift, this grace of life, this good thing that you have given to us. Help us to be the husband and wives that make you look good. And that testify to the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.